Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that come from my mouth make sense because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I valued most about taking some time off was not having to rush anywhere. We weren't going anywhere. I'm afraid it's a character trait that I've developed for better and for worse, probably mostly worse, uh, that I try and get the most amount done in the least amount of time. And one of the reasons that I like Mark's gospel so much, that out of all the other gospel writers, he's the one who tells a story without the least, with the least amount of words. And, and so maybe it was the influence of my time off. I really wanted to try and break that character trait when I came to this short passage and just sit with it, not rush anywhere with it. I must admit, when I first read the passage, my mind immediately went to an illustration that I knew. I've got this great illustration when you think about the word authority, that it comes from the word author. I'm going to smash this sermon out in no time. But as you might find, there's nothing about that in the rest of my sermon, surprisingly. Because Mark is such a fast-paced gospel, it's action-packed and to the point, it's easy to miss some of the subtle nuances And the big questions that can emerge when we use its simplicity and its succinctness for something other than rushing to the next bit or latching on to something that we find familiar. Because if we do that, we can miss the new teaching and the authority in that teaching that's always present when you reflect on God's word. And this passage really matters. So it's worth sitting with because this is Jesus' first public action. A lot happens in the first uh, 20 verses in Mark's Gospel. Firstly, we have the story of John the Baptist and his ministry, then the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, John gets arrested, and then Jesus calls Simon Andrew James and John as disciples. All this happens in 20 verses. But this is the first bit of anything Jesus-like that Jesus actually does in Mark's gospel. And so for Mark to include it in the way that he has, it must be important. So let's try and take some notice of a couple of things that we might ordinarily rush past. This isn't just Jesus rolling up his sleeves and getting down to it by showing everyone around him what he can do. There may be more to the location, the audience and the miracle itself than we might realise. Synagogues were and still are first and foremost a place of worship. They were also a place of learning and community connection and influence. Of course, Jewish people would also absolutely pray in their homes and worship in their homes. In fact, much of the way of life of a Jewish person is structured and formed and influenced by the law and the prophets. But they also had this discipline of gathering. I don't think it's insignificant that Jesus chose this particular location, a synagogue, to 
to begin his public ministry. There's something godly and profound when people of faith come together. But when they come together in Jesus' name, there is something different. There's something new. One of the big questions that I wrestled with over the break was why have people not returned to gathered worship in the same way that they used to? Particularly in southeast Queensland, when we can do so with relative ease and relative safety compared to other parts of the world. It's not just our church, but most churches I'm aware of haven't seen people and particular demographics return or return as quickly as they had hoped. I know registering and checking in is a bit of a hassle. I know that we've had to adjust the way that we do things and not everybody likes change. I know that we don't exactly know what we're going to do week for week as we try and follow to the best of our ability the government's health directives. I know that online church will be and is a real part of church life from now on. But I don't know any of my colleagues in ministry that aren't working tirelessly to build, maintain and foster connection and relationship while at the same time enable worship to be as meaningful as it can be. Yet the numbers don't lie. There must be something amiss. We've changed the way that we show ourselves to be church. Maybe because we don't like getting up as early as we used to, or it's way easier to catch up online when it suits us. Maybe it's because we don't like the fact that the church is pandering to government directives, or that we don't like things that have changed and they can't be the way that we found comfortable before. I'm sure there's a myriad of reasons that all would have a rational explanation as to why people aren't regathering as they used to gather. But I found this especially confronting when I realised that one of the hardest things to do during January on the Gold Coast was to find a reservation at a local restaurant. People are still longing to gather with each other when they want to. And, and don't get me wrong, that's changed too. You have to register and check in and make sure that you're safe and all that sort of stuff. Our shops weren't as busy as what they usually are over January, but by all reports, most retailers are quite happy with the combination of online sales and in-store sales. And for the life of me, I could not get a tradesman to return my call. Obviously, we are still spending money on ourselves. A recent survey reported that over 60% of Australians think that we need to be more focused on ourselves. Interesting, isn't it? I was reminded of an important lesson I learned in my 20s when I was a leader on a youth camp. At a particular point in the camp, the sort of the crescendo of the camp, 
We challenged people to consider their faith journey and made a number of, of ministers and priests and clergy and leaders available for young people to talk to. And there was a range of different ages and stages and backgrounds, a mix of men and women. And one of my jobs on the camp was to help people be guided to somebody that they would feel comfortable talking to. And I will never forget one young man, he's not so young anymore, but he, he was really challenged by the weekend and you could see that he wanted to talk to somebody and I said to him, who would you like to, to, to talk to? And his response to me was, Stuart, I don't care. I've come to see Jesus. As we start our year seeking the new, I wonder whether we have the right motivation. What would it mean if our gatherings, our connection points and our interactions were motivated by a singular desire to come and be with Jesus and to be around Jesus' people. I suspect it wouldn't matter what songs we sang, who had the microphone in their hand, or whether there was wine with communion. And I also wonder if we become more aware of the miracle. And that's what I want to focus on as my last revelation of not rushing through this passage. The miracle, the exorcism of the man with the unclean spirit. Because I've got to be honest, the longer I sat with this passage, the more uncomfortable I got with this miracle. It didn't seem quite right. You see, I like to consider myself as a bit of a student of culture and context. So as I slowed down over this passage, I was struck with the unsettling question of how, how on earth would it be possible for a man with an unclean spirit to find his way into a synagogue? You see, there were a number of purification rituals required for somebody to enter a synagogue. And if there was any hint of uncleanliness, you had to make sure you followed the health and cultural protocols before you were allowed in the door. Sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? One of the cultural norms that Jesus challenged, as we saw in that amazing story about the man with leprosy uh, in our kids' talk, was that he challenged those who had excluded others because of their perceived or actual uncleanliness. Jesus included them. And he was constantly being criticised for the company he kept and the taboos that he broke. But we are not there yet. See, this is day one on the job. There is no way that anyone who was in any way known to have any sense of uncleanliness without having been made clean would be allowed in a synagogue. And this started me to ask some big and some more unsettling questions. Were those in the synagogue unaware of the unclean spirit? And the man himself, maybe they didn't know that he was possessed by this spirit. 
Some scholars have suggested that this man himself may have been one of the scribes. And they point to the words that he say. It says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Puts a whole new spin on it if one of the scribes had an unclean spirit, doesn't it? Could the unclean spirit have been a spirit that had taken hold of the worship, the life, the order and community of that synagogue? I started down an unsettling rabbit hole because this revelation causes us to ask, what is unclean about ourselves? What is unclean about our communities? What is unclean about the things that we hold dear and find comfort in? And the longer that you sit with these questions, the harder it is to rationalise, I'm fine, I'm clean. If our motivation is to put ourselves first and to be more selfish, it's not hard to imagine how easily that motivation can get distorted, corrupted and become harmful and hurtful. It's not hard to imagine how we can be possessed by such a type of thinking or spirit. While all along we give a rational voice to the excuses that we deserve it, it's not our fault and it's been a tough year. See, Jesus came to expel this type of spirit from the man, from the synagogue and the culture of that time. But more importantly, he wants to expel it from our lives today that we might instead find ourselves encouraged, empowered, strengthened and sustained and maybe even use the word possessed by a different sort of spirit, the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget the words that my dad said as I was a a brand new uh, ordained priest. He said, Stuart, the most powerful force known to humanity is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Nothing can overcome the Holy Spirit. I love new things. I actually like change. Uh, During January, I upgraded my phone to the latest iPhone. One true faith. I purchased this brand new T-shirt. Not sure how the stripes go on camera, but hey... But one thing that I've known for a long time is that new things cost. It may sound trite to just brush aside and say, oh, Jesus has paid the cost, so everything's all right. But that is true, I believe it with all my heart. But he's also left us with a cost to consider. And it's a difficult cost. Are we prepared to pay the cost of allowing the focus to come off ourselves and come off our own well-being? Are we prepared to bear the expense of doing things that are outside our comfort zone and maybe even doing things that we hate doing? Because this is the only cost for us to just come and see Jesus. To come and be with Jesus and to be around Jesus' people. 
Ironically, if you look back through the history of church, you'll see it littered with stories of how they've responded to plagues and pandemics. It hasn't changed or stopped the church from spreading the gospel. And through the Holy Spirit's power, it won't stop the good news of Jesus Christ being born anew today. So let us pray. Loving God, challenge and convict us with what is unclean about our lives. Help us to be reminded that in our own strength and our power, in our own focus on our strength and our well-being and, and our wholeness, we're still not enough. And that we need you and we need your people around us. We need the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through us. We thank you that you've never left us. You've been patiently waiting for us. And may we commit anew today to try our best to have only one motivation and that is to come and see you. And we ask this in your mighty name.